episode one. Welcome, friends, and thank you for tuning in today. This is Bible FAQ with Kirk Van, the podcast that provides brief, thoughtful, biblical answers to your questions. And this is episode one, so the very first full episode in which I'll be answering questions submitted by uh, listeners, or in this case, I suppose, potential listeners. Uh, So on this episode, I have a few questions that I'd like to get you. First, I want to say thank you for the wonderful response to the introduction episode. And uh, I also received several questions already. So I look forward to getting to all of those in future episodes and even get to a couple of them today. So without further ado, I want to get to your questions for today. Uh, The first question comes to us from Jeremiah in Indianapolis, Indiana. Now, uh, I'm using this question first because this is the very first question that actually came through uh, the new website, kirkvan.com. And so this is the first question submitted, so I figured it's only fitting uh, that we address it on our first episode. So Jeremiah's question is this, what is the best order to read the Bible in? Well, that's a very interesting question, and certainly I believe uh, there's no wrong way to read the Bible. There's no wrong order, what have you. Perhaps some methods are better suited for comprehension. Uh, Some may be more true to the historical chronology of events covering the Bible. Some may be more practical in terms of balancing uh, reading more difficult sections or or books with those that are considered easier uh, to read and understand. Uh, Some like Bible reading plans that balance a variety of different types of genres. Uh, in scripture. And I understand all that. And I think all that's wonderful. Uh, But what's the best method? Well, I don't know that there's a best best method, uh, but I'll talk about a couple of different methods here. First question we need to ask ourselves is why is the Bible compiled in the order that we have it in the first place? Uh, Is there a rhyme or reason uh, to the way we have it? And uh, of course, we realize that the Bible is organized uh, by genre, and that begins with the Old Testament. It's organized by genre. Now, this follows the standard set by the excuse me by the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures compiled a few hundred years before the time of Christ. So, it was the first uh, translation of the Old Testament to put the books of the Bible in uh, the order of genre. And of course, that Old Testament genre is history, uh, poetry, and then prophecy. And so all the books are arranged in that way. The New Testament follows a similar example, and uh, its order is also by genre in history, epistles or letters, and then prophecy. Uh, So it begins with the Gospels, which is the history of Jesus, and those are listed in the order in which they were written under the traditional understanding. That's disputed today about the exact order that they were written, uh, but the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, appear in that order because that was the traditional understanding. Uh, Then we go to the book of Acts, which is the history of the uh, apostles in the early church, then the Pauline epistles, the letters that Paul wrote first to the churches, and then to individuals, and they're basically listed in order of length. And then the general epistles, again, basically listed in the order of length, Hebrews, James, Peter, John, Jude, and then, of course, the book of Revelations, uh, which represents that third genre 
of prophecy. So is this the best order? Is it best to read the Bible as it's been handed down to us in order of genre, uh, with the history being read together, poetry being read together, prophecies being read together, um, in the case of the New Testament, the epistles being read together? Well, I think it's a good order. I don't think it's problematic. That works perfectly fine for a reading order. It was selected for, for a reason. It makes sense. There's a purpose to it. And so I think for most people, that's a uh, not only a perfectly acceptable reading order, I think it's a good reading order and really difficult to improve upon. So is there a better order? Well, let's take the New Testament first. I'd say not really. Um, I mean, people have tried to... Um, suggest different orders for the reading of the New Testament. Some people say, let's put it in the order in which it was re written. The problem with that is, is there is a lot of speculation and conjecture. There's a lot of unknowns about the dating of different books in the Bible. If we take the epistles for the example, even if we knew precisely, which we don't, uh, which order they were written in, would it really make a difference? I don't think it would, uh, primarily because the epistles uh, cover topics and questions, not a, not a historical chronology, if you will. So whatever order you read them in, it doesn't seem to matter in terms of digesting the material and gaining a comprehension of the themes in which the, the Bible writers talk about. The same way for the Gospels. If we were to change the order of the Gospels, would it matter in our understanding of Scripture and our uh, comprehension of the principles that are being relayed uh, therein, I don't believe it would. I do personally like the idea of Luke and Acts appearing together and re studying them together, uh, but that's more for deep Bible study and contemplation and not necessarily for a reading order for your everyday devotional reading of Scripture. Uh, so I don't really think, uh, if there's a way to improve upon the order, I really don't know what it would be other, other than just using a reading plan, which you read a little bit of each different type of genre every day just to mix it up a little bit. Um, I suppose that's okay for some people. I prefer taking the books of the Bible as a, as a, as a whole unit and focusing on one book at a, at a time. Uh, the Old Testament, however, is a different question. Because uh, it is not in the original order in which it was uh, conceived, if you will. It's not in the original traditional order of the Hebrew scriptures according to the Jewish traditions. Uh, as I mentioned, the Septuagint placed the books in the order of genre, and that tradition continued uh, with the tr Christian tradition. However, the Hebrew scriptures uh, were prior to that time, were always listed, ordered differently. And still today, in Jewish publications, they will uh, provide the Hebrew scriptures in the original order in which uh, they were always conceived. And so um, the, the Hebrew Bible would be referred to as the Tanakh. Now, it's exactly the same as the Old Testament in terms of its composition. However, it is compiled and presented in the order, a different order, if you will. So the Tanakh, the word Tanakh is actually just an acronym, uh, which is made from the abbreviations of the three main divisions of the Hebrew Scripture, which I'll get to in just a moment. So the Tanakh consists of 24 divisions instead of 39. And again, that's because they compile certain books together. For example, all the minor prophets appear in one book in the Tanakh, and some others are compiled separately or differently. So that's a major difference is why there's 24 instead of 39. However, let me be clear, it's the exact same books. It's the exact same material. There's not any missing or added. The Tanakh in the Old Testament covered the exact same 
material, book for book, chapter for chapter. Now, here are the three main divisions of the, uh, of the Tanakh, and you could use this as a reading plan if you wanted to be uh, read the, uh, the Old Testament in the order in which the Jewish people has, have always conceived it. Uh, it starts out the same as the Christian Old Testament in terms that the Torah is first. The word Torah in Hebrew means teaching and law, the five books of Moses. So that comes first, and that's the first major division. The second major division in the Hebrew Scriptures would be the Nevi'im, or the prophets, and you'll have to excuse my poor uh, Hebrew pronunciation. But the Nevi'im is also split into two parts, the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former made up of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And even though we consider those historical books, uh, they're prophetic books in that they were written by individuals who are perceived to be prophets according to the religious tradition. And then the latter books would be Isaiah, uh, the book of Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and then that book, uh, which is the compilation of the twelve, uh, makes up the, the remainder of the Nevi'im, or the prophets. And then the third section then is called the Ketuvim, uh, or translated writings. So in this case, there doesn't seem to be a single authoritative order in which they're given throughout history. The order varies a bit from time to time. However, the most traditional order uh, is that the poetical books are listed first, and those include Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and, uh, and all the different uh, orders throughout history start with Psalms and the other poetical books. Then comes the five scrolls. So these are the five shortest books of the Ketuvim uh, and also connected to specific holy days within the Jewish uh, tradition. So that would be Song of Songs, uh, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And finally, the last section uh, of the third major division of the writings is made up of historical books. And specifically, these are historical books of the post-exilic period, uh, made up of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, which is compiled into one book, and Chronicles, which is compiled into one volume. And so uh, the former written by Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, all written, uh, attributed to Ezra. And so the, uh, in the Hebrew uh, ordering uh, of the Old Testament, it ends with the book of Chronicles, or, or more accurately, Second Chronicles, with what we would be familiar with. So, uh, again, there's some alternative listings of the writings, but that is the traditional listing. So I think this is an interesting idea in terms of a reading order for the Bible, for the Old Testament specifically. And there's good reason to believe uh, that this is the way that people in the time of Jesus and the apostles uh, visualized or understood the ordering of the, of the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, Jesus made a couple of statements that seems to make this quite clear. In one case, he talked about the blood uh, of martyrs being shed in the Old Testament, and he, he used the example from Abel until Zechariah. Well, under our uh, well-known ordering of the scriptures, that doesn't seem to have a lot of significance, but if you consider the Hebrew ordering of the scriptures, uh, Abel, of course, is in the book of Genesis, the first book. Zechariah, uh, his death is recorded in 2 Kings, which would be the last book that appears uh, in, in the Tanakh, in the, in the Old Testament writings. And so uh, that phrase it takes on more significance because it covers the whole history of all the Hebrew scriptures. And so 
that's an important understanding. Also, Jesus referred to uh, the law and the prophets and the Psalms as referring to him or describing him or predicting his coming. And if we understand the Psalms to be representative of the entire Ketuvim as it appears first, and that is actually a historical understanding uh, and substitution that they made, then Jesus' comment takes on more significance because we understand that he was saying all of the Hebrew scriptures uh, from uh, the law, the first part, uh, the, the prophets, the second part, and the writings or the Psalms, the second, uh, the third part, all of the Hebrew scriptures testify of me is what Jesus was saying. So I think Jesus conceptualized and the apostles and the people of that time conceptualized the Bible in Hebrew terms, although they were familiar with the Septuagint and it does appear to be quoted uh, since it was written in the Greek in the Greek uh, New Testament as well. So that's an alternative for uh, a reading order of the Old Testament. I think it's an interesting one. Uh, I have not personally uh, done that before in terms of a reading plan. Uh, maybe next year I might try that. Uh, I'm just using a more traditional reading plan right now, uh, just reading a portion of the Old Testament and a portion of the New Testament every day in the traditional order. And so, uh, you know, back to the question, what's the best order? Well, part of that really depends on one's experience and knowledge in the Bible. And if one is relatively new to the Bible, uh, or even maybe they're not a new believer, but they're new in their commitment to read the Bible, they haven't had a lot of experience reading it, I always suggest to all believers, start in the New Testament. Uh, that just makes the most sense. It's the easiest to read and understand and digest. It gets directly to the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the apostles after them. Uh, after him. Uh, the Old Testament is certainly important. Uh, it's critical. It's vital. We need to read it. Uh, but if you've got to start somewhere, and I'd suggest you'd start in the New Testament. Um, you know, and if, if motivation is not a factor, in other words, if one is uh, committed to continue reading uh, either daily or on a consistent basis, I'd say just read the books in order that they appear in our contemporary Bible by the genre. As I said before, that makes as much sense as anything. Uh, however, if someone really wants to just get a quick jump or they want to just read sections that are kind of indicative and representative of the entire Bible, get a sampling of the major themes and writing styles and so forth, you may employ a, 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 a reading plan uh, that gets more uh, diversity uh, in it right from the start. So I would suggest something like maybe in the New Testament, start with Luke, Acts. So read the Gospel of Luke, followed by Acts, and then maybe read Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, Colossians as four books to represent Paul's writings. I think those four books, uh, they only consist of 20 chapters total for all four of them. I think it's a good representative sample of the major themes of Paul's theology. Obviously, it doesn't get you everything he said, uh, but it's a good sample, a good representation. And then, uh, you know, you need to read uh, James for sure. You need to read John for sure. And then after that, you can go back and pick up the books that you skipped over and the ones you left out. And again, it's, it's very important to read all of it, but I understand the idea of wanting to get a quick jump and reading, uh, establish a, a, a foundation and a knowledge of the Bible more quickly. Uh, some people really want to do that. And I'd say the same about the Old Testament. Uh, read Genesis and Exodus, and then maybe skip to some of the other historical books, uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel's, Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, 
Nehemiah are the main ones that you'd really need to hit to get a comprehensive understanding of Old Testament Jewish history. After that, go to Psalms and Proverbs because those are indispensable. All the Bible's indispensable, I understand that, but that's indispensable to the life of the believer in that it just gives a lot of spiritual insight and guidance and wisdom. And then after that, that gives you such a strong foundation. Hopefully your motivation and discipline will have been developed and you could go back and read the Bible in order or go back and pick up the missing uh, books that you skipped over the first time. Now, some of the Old Testament is more difficult to comprehend. Some of it is a little bit more higher reading level and a little bit more complex. Uh, Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy tend to be that way. Most of the writings of the prophet tends to be that way. But I should emphasize there's a huge blessing in reading it. There's a huge blessing in reading all the Bible straight through. And eventually I would uh, suggest that everyone do that. So I hope that answers the question. Uh, in, in summary, it doesn't matter a whole lot. Best to start in the New Testament. The reading order as it classically appears in the scripture works fine. An interesting alternative for the Old Testament is the ordering that's represented in the Tanakh. And uh, you can, if you want to get a quick jump, you can use one of those abbreviated reading plans that I suggested and then fill in the, uh, the missing books uh, after the fact. Uh, the important thing is to read your Bible, <laughs> read it consistently, read it, uh, read it frequently and uh, make it a part uh, of your life and you will not be disappointed or let down as the Lord speaks to you through his word. So that's the answer to the first question. And I, I want to keep moving here because I want to get a few questions in today if we have time. So the second question I'd like to address uh, comes to us from Brian in Muncie, Indiana. And uh, you might say, well, don't you live in Muncie, Indiana? Well, close. I live in Yorktown. Uh, our church is in Muncie, Indiana. So Brian uh, is a, is a uh, member of our church, River of Life in Muncie. And I was speaking to him about the podcast. And he said, I've got a question for you. And I said, yeah, I'll definitely include it. So here's the question from Brian. And I'm including this to, uh, today because it is a question I've been asked very frequently. Probably one of the most frequent questions I've been asked in my experience in the ministry over many years. And so uh, Brian's question is this. What does the Bible say about cremation? Is it against the teaching of Scripture to be cremated instead of being buried in the traditional way? And I know this is more than just a theological curiosity for some people. It boils down to decisions we have to make about ourselves or our loved ones. And so it's a question we really need to take seriously and really consider what the Bible says about it, and not just, not just what's been handed down to us from traditions or cultural understandings. So let me start by saying there's nothing in the Bible that forbids cremation as a means of dealing with remains of human body after death. There's simply, there's simply nothing that would prohibit that or nothing that would condemn that. In fact, I'll take it a step, step further and say there's no Bible passage, there's no Bible theme or principle that provides instructions or guidelines for either acceptable or unacceptable procedures for dealing with human remains. It is just a topic that the Bible is relatively silent on. It certainly doesn't address it directly. 
And so in my thinking, that's a pretty good indication that it is not a, uh, a an area that we need to be extremely dogmatic about. Uh, I know an argument for silence is not a strong argument, but nevertheless, it seems if this was something critically important, uh, because it's a decision and a, and a fact that everybody has to face at some point, it seems that it would get a little bit more coverage in Scripture, but we find it gets very little and certainly no direct guidance or addressed uh, specifically. So it is true that the Bible, uh, in Bible times rather, uh, that it, the common practice uh, for dealing with the remains of the departed uh, was burial, and it's also true that cremation seemed uh, rather rare. But again, there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that this was based on God's instructions or God's preference in any way, but rather it just seems to be uh, you know, kind of a, an adoption of cultural customs that had been developed over time. And, uh, and that's just what was done. Now, also, we need to point out that in at least a couple cases, the burning of bodies after death appears to have been done out of contempt for the individuals who had departed. And uh, in that sense, uh, viewed in a negative light or, or the connotation is negative. And a good example of this is the example of Achan in the book of Joshua, chapter number seven. Now, we know Achan, Achan was disobedient to God, rebellious against God's word, uh, sinned against God, and therefore uh, he was judged uh, heavily, both by God. He brought uh, he brought God's wrath upon not only himself, but all the children of Israel. And so uh, the way they dealt with this grave sin against God was they executed Achan and all those that were with him in his sin. And then the Bible says they burned the bodies of those that were executed. They threw them together in a pile and they heaped stones upon that pile. So this was actually obviously done as a judgment. This was done out of contempt for Achan and these individuals. And so therefore, in this case, uh, burning the body seems to be a negative connotation in Scripture. However, I think we need to balance that with other examples from Scripture. Uh, and a good a good case is the case of King Saul uh, from First Samuel chapter number thirty one. Now, when King Saul uh, died and his sons died, some of his sons died along with him. Uh, their bodies were uh, in the possession of their enemies, the en enemies of Israel, the Philistines. And the Philistines desecrated their bodies. They treated them contemptuously. Uh, they treated them with dishonor and disrespect. In, in fact, they fastened them to the wall of the heathen temple. They sent out word throughout the land to come and mock and gaw uh, gawk at these, at these bodies uh, in a way that was not only disrespectful for the king who had departed and his family, but for all of Israel as well. Well, the Bible tells us that there was mighty, or excuse me, valiant men uh, of Israel uh, that came and they recovered the bodies of King Saul and his sons. And uh, after they recovered the bodies, the Bible describes that they burned the bodies and then buried the burned remains in the ground. And uh, so there's no sense of this being the burning of the bodies in this sense being a negative thing. Uh, rather, it seems to have been done in a way of preventing further dishonor uh, by the Philistines in a way of respectful dis uh, disposing uh, of the remains of King Saul and his sons. So not in a negative light, not in any way that was contemptuous in this regard. Uh, it was just seen as an honorable uh, uh, 
uh, thing in this particular case. And later in 2 Samuel, King David, he commends uh, the individuals who were responsible for this, who recovered the body and uh, because they had treated the king with respect and dignity. And so, again, this is seen in a positive light, not in a negative light in this case. So certainly the Bible does display a great respect and concern for the treatment of the human body after death. That's because our bodies are given to us by God. An example would be the patriarchs in Genesis that show great concern about their own proper burial and resting place when they were uh, in their last days, if you will. Uh, Ecclesiastes 6 and 3 is often cited uh, implying uh, that having a, a, a burial, or excuse me, not having a burial, if an individual were not to have a proper burial, that it would be a shame or a disgrace. Uh, but I think we need to consider that the Hebrew term here uh, implies not the method of disposing of the body, but it implies a grave site itself or a sepulcher, an actual place uh, where the, the person's life is commemorated. And so the suggestion here, and I think it also applies to the case of the, the patriarchs and other cases as well, the suggestion is that one should leave, lead a life uh, that is an honorable life, that one should be uh, lead a life, lead their life in such a way that they will be remembered uh, with, with uh, respect and they will be honored after they're gone. Uh, and this is indicated by uh, instead of your, you know, your offspring or your loved ones just uh, ignoring the fact that you're gone or not doing anything special, that they would actually take the time to to uh, dispose of your remains properly and respectfully. And in that, in that sense, uh, again, they followed the cultural custom of the day. So the takeaway here is living a good life, living an honorable life, live a life that will be respected beyond your years. And that is what brings glory and honor. And to not do so would be a shame or disgrace. I think that's what the Bible is pointing at there and not the means of disposal of human remains per se. Of course, the Bible also affirms in many different ways that our bodies are significant in, in, in that they have dignity because they are given to us by God and we should be good stewards of our body and life. And I think in some sense that would apply to our body after uh, death takes place as well. But you know, I think we can affirm all those things, uh, but I just don't see how the contemporary practice of cremation in any way dishonors or disrespects that. I think that if it's done properly uh, and with care and respect, that it would still uh, uh, honor the dignity of the body and be a good steward of the body that God has given us. Um, one more uh, objection that some people tend to have, or at least a question that people have as it pertains to this question, is the idea of the resurrection of the body. As Christians, uh, believers in the Bible, uh, we know that there will be a point in time in which God uh, will raise the bodies of believers uh, from the dead, from the grave, if you will, and that he will, and we will be reunited with our spirits and our bodies will be glorified and we'll live forever with the Lord in eternity. Well, the question then that some people have, and it's a good question, if the body is burned and no longer exists, then how is it that God's going to resurrect it from the grave, resurrect it from the dead? Well, in reality, this is really kind of a scientific question, if you will. Um, the fact is that matter cannot be destroyed. And so the matter that makes up our bodies will exist in some form, some place. And if you think about it, every body 
will eventually completely decompose. If you're buried in a grave, uh, the body will eventually decompose. Uh, it will turn to dust, if you will. And the Bible, as the Bible explains, it will return to the dust of, uh, of the ground from whence we came. And so that's going to take place no matter what we do. Now, it can take much longer. Uh, it can take anywhere from 10 years to 2,000 years to completely decompose, including our skeletal uh, bones. That depends on the climate and if preservation techniques have been used in other conditions. But the fact of the matter is whether we are buried in the ground or whether we are burned in cremation, we are going to end up as dust eventually, every single one of us. For, so from that perspective, it makes little difference uh, whether we're cremated or where we're buried. And all cremation does in this, in this regard is expedite the process that's going to take place naturally uh, at at some time in the future. And also, I mean, this is the important part of this. We know from Scripture that God is able to bring together whatever has been scattered. In Mark chapter 13, verse number 27, Jesus makes a statement, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. And this is speaking of the gathering together of the departed believers. Uh, the book of Revelation talks about the gathering together of the dead at the judgment and talks about the dead giving uh, the sea rather giving up its dead. So we understand that God is able uh, to gather together uh, the matter of our bodies, however it has been disposed of and however our remains, uh, wherever they are from the four winds to the sea, uh, to any part of the earth. God can reunite that. God can bring it back together. God can uh, continue with the glorification process of our bodies at resurrection irregardless of how uh, we have, um, what decisions we have made in terms of uh, the disposal of human remains at the point of death. And so, in short, uh, in summary, it seems pretty clear to me that there is no biblical and moral reason to prefer burial over contemporary cremation practice or vice versa. I think it's a morally neutral uh, area, and I don't think it's something that, um, it's certainly not something that the Bible addresses directly. It's certainly not something it condemns. There are positive instances of it in Scripture, and just from a logical and reasonable standpoint, it will make very little, if any, difference in the long run. So I hope this answers the question. Uh, any preference is personal or cultural or traditional and not a biblical question and not a moral question. Uh, I hope this answers, uh, you know, some uh, maybe objections that people have heard. I hope it dispels some of the misinformation and myths surrounding the question. And I hope it relieves some people of a little bit of stress as, we, as they address this for their own uh, arrangements for themselves or loved ones uh, as we deal with those questions and decisions in life. And, and whatever we do, uh, just get together with family, uh, make sure everybody's on the same page, and, and proceed knowing uh, that God... Uh, has not addressed this in his word, and that it seems to be a morally neutral uh, question, uh, that we have great latitude and great liberty in the Christian sense uh, to make that decision. So I don't have a, a lot of time left here. I think that probably we should end there for today. I'm trying to keep these episodes uh, uh, thir about 30 minutes in length, and we're right at that time. So hopefully uh, we'll get to... Uh, 
more questions in future uh, podcast episodes. But thank you so much for listening today and taking the time out of your day uh, to listen to Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. So until next time, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance unto thee and give thee peace. Farewell for now.